lesson, our Sunday school lesson here. Uh, I didn't erase these five points here just because I wanted to couch them in a different way today or in a broader context. Um, just reminding uh, what, what, what that dirty little word <laughs> in a lot of circles is Calvinism. And uh, it's, it's a boogeyman, really, for a lot of people. Um, they, they either, A, don't understand it or have, have been taught against it for so long that they think that, um, that it's unbiblical. But hopefully last week we laid the groundwork for understanding it. What is it? I want us to say it in a simple matter as possible. What are the five points? Well, first of all, going back, you have to have a doctrine of election because election scripture. God chose, God chose, it's all over, he elected, he elected, he chose the sweet things to confound the wise, he chose the, uh, the foolish things, uh, so on and so forth. Um, he, we are cho he chose us in, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those are all, all uh, things that are, have to be a part of your doctrine uh, because they are in the scripture and we can throw in terms like predestination and foreknowledge, those are all things uh, that are part of this broader landscape. And what Calvinism is, really, is this, it's this broad view of looking at the Scripture. We just sung two songs. From what perspective were they being sung? From this perspective. Uh, even those things that we would, we would cringe a little bit at, like limited atonement, which is an unfortunate way of saying it, we don't want to limit the power of the blood of Christ in any way, but particular atonement, but that would destroy the entire TULIP <laughs> an acronym. But that's exactly what he was saying. His blood did avail for me. It did save me. It didn't make it possible for me to be saved. It actually purchased me. All right? So the broader form of look before I erase this is... We who are totally, sin, totally sinful, totally lost, not a semi-Pelagianism or a full Pelagianism that says, oh, we're, yeah, we're sinners, but we're not that bad. We're, we're good enough to make it if we tried really hard <laughs> or if we jumped the right hoops or, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, we're, we're not completely fallen. No, we're totally fallen. There's none good. No, not one. None that are righteous, uh, so on and so forth. So the... That mankind being totally lost, God, before he created the world, chose to save some of the lost. He sent the Son to literally pay the price to atone for their sins in a real way. He sent the Spirit to draw them and bring them to salvation. And he continually sanctifies them unto the end and will bring them home. That's the simplest way you can talk about it. Uh, we, 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 uh, this is the undergirding of any, any real understanding of eternal security, things of that nature. Uh, and the songs, we, like I said, the songs we sing the ones that really touch us say, it's all of grace. 
And that's why they speak to us so much. So that, in a nutshell, if you want to look at it and just remember it like that, uh, just for uh, the TULIP is good, the TULIP is a good acronym to remember it, but to remember this is all describing grace, every bit of it. Grace to the sinner that could not, was completely unable to save themselves. God chose to save them, sent a Savior to save them, sent the Spirit to draw them, and by His grace keeps them. Now, the problem is, is theologically, as you start to try to pick these apart, you inevitably have to move away from a position of grace to say it's grace, but also, and that's where we get in, that's where we can get into a lot of theological uh, uh, haziness, I guess. Um, this is a commitment to speak about salvation wholly by grace. Now, I want to give you a broader framework today. Uh, Redeeming Grace Church, when they start here September 1st, uh, will say they are, they are reformed. And we traditionally, especially my grandpa and my dad in secession was, was uh, there's my eraser. Uh, well, I mean, there's a certain amount of landmarkism that was taught. Anybody know what landmarkism is? Landmark Baptists, the Baptist Briders. All right. Uh, anybody ever read the Trail of Blood? All right. Now it's a nice, nice little pamphlet. Uh, unfortunately, it's filled with a lot of historical inaccuracies. And in fact, some of the, uh, but some of the Baptist Briders will, uh, like the Landmarkism, will say, you know, uh, <laughs> say. Silly stuff like uh, Jesus was a Baptist because he was baptized by John the Baptist. And, uh, and uh, uh, so were all the disciples, so they were all Baptists. Jesus Christ started the very first Baptist church of Jerusalem. And uh, the Trail of Bud kind of picks that up. And to the point where they, you, you will say, and some of them even go so far as to say, unless you are baptized by someone who is baptized by someone, who was baptized by John the Baptist? Uh, then your baptism is not is not uh, is not uh, good. Yeah, this idea that there is an unbroken chain. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is there is an unbroken chain that goes all the way back, but it's a doctrinal chain. If you were to Consider what we, what we call today's Baptist, it is Reformed. Um, um, the early Reformers were all leaving the Catholic Church and started the Anabaptist movement and things like that. And by the way, a lot of the Anabaptists, we would not want anything to do with. But in the Trail of Blood, it said, you know, I mean, we were connected with some, well, some, they, they were calling our Baptist forefathers people that were heretics, <laughs> Uh, regarding salvation. Uh, so so there was this movement to really say, and I really think a lot of uh, the independent Baptist, fundamentalist uh, Baptist movements uh, were so militant about being Baptist and so militant about saying Baptists were the true one true church. 
that there was never an emphasis on, on what it meant to be reformed. And we would never, uh, we, uh, i.e. the independent fundamental Baptists would never talk our, of ourselves in those forms. But the fact is, is we are reformed. Uh, there is a doctor, there, there are people who will believe the truth of the scriptures all throughout since the days of Christ. Um, but the idea that there's this unbroken chain of, of Baptists that go all the way back. Which, what, what I'm saying about being reformed, what does it mean to be reformed? And this is going to be the broader framework by which we understand, uh, well, the doctrine of grace that we talked about last week. What does it mean to be reformed? Now, this is a, my thoughts are broken on this, and I don't really, like I said, <laughs> uh, I would have loved to have spent several weeks on each and every one of these topics, uh, but unfortunately, this is the last week of Sunday school. So, we're going to get this in as much as we possibly can. So, what it means to be reformed is that someone holds to the essentials of the Re Reformation, those things that defined reformational faith. Does that make sense? Uh, so for, for a thousand years or so, the Church of Rome dominated all things. Uh, that really started developing maybe the 5th, 6th century, the dominance of Rome, and then you have the great schism that happened around 1016, I believe. Uh, between, and that's not the right date, I, I know it. But sometime around the year 1000, you had the great schism whereby... Uh, the Eastern Orthodox broke off and said, no, we got our own set of traditions and, and that, that's the way of salvation is through our traditions, not yours. And, and, and then for another 500 years or so, um, really uh, the, the, Catholic, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church ruled, uh, that was the church in Europe, until um, a monk named... Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the wall, which he wasn't trying to get a lot of attention. <laughs> he was just inviting a debate about a subject um, about Catholic indulgences. And it spurred what we know as, as the Reformation. And the, the Re Reforma once the authority of Rome was being questioned, um, it returned men to the very first point of the Reformation that we hold dear. And what is that? Sola Scriptura. And I'm not really good at Latin. <laughs> I, I, can, I, I, can, I can do well in Greek and I can fumble through Hebrew. But uh, so this is Latin. Sola Scriptura. What does Sola Scriptura mean? Anybody know what Sola means? Alone, all right? So, by the scriptures alone. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, famous for, uh, went in his trial for saying, unless it can be shown to me from the scriptures and basically, uh, or basically shown how it can be inferred from the scriptures, uh, I cannot in my conscience uh, turn from it. I don't have the exact quote. But that does, what, what, the, what this means is, is the scriptures alone, be, alone becomes our rule of faith. Uh, 
what is contained in the scriptures. The scriptures become what we have always said. And the thing is, is these ideas are all part of our language, uh, but traditionally uh, are hanging on to a little bit of a, a form of landmarkism uh, has really kept us from just using the terms. But these are, this is what they mean. The scriptures is the sole rule of faith and practice. Um, now, there is no other authority than what God has spoken. Turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy, and we're going through this quickly, and I'm just trying to hit the highlights for our understanding and for those like uh, Tina and those that couldn't be here today, we're recording so uh, she can listen to it later. Uh, but uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, um, what's it say? Well, let's go back a little bit. In verse 15, he says, And from a child, Timothy, uh, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And therefore, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. That there is a sufficiency of Scripture. Now, uh, that word inspiration, uh, God breathed. Uh, it's actually, we, we use inspiration like breathing in. But literally, it's a breathing out. God breathed out. It's expiration, not inspiration, but we we kind of... We kind of think of expiration date as something bad, so we always called it inspiration. But real, literally, God breathed. God breathed this out. What The words of God, these are actually literally the words that God revealed to us. And as such, they stand unequivocally as the authority. Now, this is challenged by especially Roman Catholics, the Council of Trent, uh, which was, was the answer of, which is the anti-Reformation answer of the Catholic Church to the Reformation, where they defined that we decided what scriptures were. But, but there was always, in the Old Testament, we always understood what the Old Testament was, what was laid up in the temple, uh, uh, that which made our hands dirty. <laughs> um, th th those books, we knew what those books were. Those books were those that were quoted by Jesus, quoted by the apostles, uh, authoritatively, where Christ says, "Have you not read?" Um, we, we, the, the, from early on, way before the Council on Nicaea, and you, if you ever read um, Dan Brown or some of these others, they'll say, "Well, they didn't even decide what was in the Bible until 350 or something like that." Uh, Constantine put your new Testament. No, that's not true. Uh, Clement and 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 others uh, from the very early time identified what scriptures were. They quoted them authoritatively as coming from the apostles who actually knew Christ, and that was all within the very first century. We've always had an understanding of what the scriptures were. Now, some people will take this and say, well, every scripture that is inspired by God, and, and they will say that it reads like that, uh, but that's not how it reads. Uh, the, the pawn, the all there, uh, is acting like an article, uh, and 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 not as and not as and not creating a predicate right there. All Scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God. 
So every bit of Scripture, there's not part of the Scripture that's really authoritative and part of the Scripture that's not, but everything that God gave us creates the authority by which we live. Now, does that mean there's not, uh, there are there other authorities? Well, yeah, you have other authorities in your life. We're not saying this is, uh, we're not saying solo scriptura. Scripture is the only authority, but sola scriptura. When it comes to our faith, when it comes to our practice, when it, what God breathes out is the, it, it's, it's the plumb line by which we judge all other authorities. Uh, you have authorities in your life, right? Uh, you have, uh, you have parents, <laughs> or at least, I mean, at one point in time, you had parents. God gave you authorities. Your mom, your dad was your authority. There is even a, there's even things that we can call authoritative within the Christian realm. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all have really great things. But they are only true as they agree with Scripture. Now, for instance, the Council of Nicaea, uh, uh, we, 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 we would believe, with every, believe every word of the Nicene Creed. We wouldn't necessarily believe uh, some of the other things that came out of that Nicene Council because some of it was already departing from Scripture. But, but, and we, we can look at those things, that, uh, the Council at Chalcedon and others. We can say, well, that, that was a good authoritative claim, but its authority was derived from the Scriptures. We do, not, we do not say, well, there's this paradigm that we hold to be authoritative, and we have to work all things from this paradigm. No, the scriptures themselves are the paradigm. When Athanasius, one of the early church fathers from, we're talking about the, um, in the end of the third century there, uh, began to uh, debate Arius, uh, he was not debating from some kind of philosophical paradigm that was authoritative. He wasn't debating from tradition. How did Athanasius defeat Arianism? The scripture. You all know what Arianism right, is, right? One of the early heresies that says Jesus was not God. Jesus was a created being. Athanasius went to the scriptures and showed that Jesus was Christ. Uh, so the scriptures are the sole authority. This is, uh, by the way, I forgot to say, these, this are the, what it means to be reformed is basically you're holding to what's called the five solas. And chief of all, this is the, the, uh, the informal, the formal structure of the Reformation was a belief in sola scriptura. Good so far? <laughs> All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The nature of Scripture makes it an authority, not the traditions of men, such as the Corban rule. Anybody know what the Corban rule was? Well, they had this tradition, right? Uh, uh, to where if they had property, they could give it to the temple as a gift and still use it for themselves, but give it to the temple as a gift and said, this is a gift, a Corban uh, and therefore, whatever my parents might, may have needed, <laughs> you know, it's already given to God. I'm not going to use it for them. It's, it's being used for God. And Jesus Christ says, you make vain the commandments of God by your traditions. The traditions of men are only true if they agree with Scripture. So when we're, our, when we're talking about maybe the Catholic Church or something like that, chiefly the Reformation was a was a uh, was a, a reforming from the traditions of the Catholic Church. Uh, 
would uh, would judge those traditions by the word of word of God, and that is that became, like I said, the formal structure of the entire Reformation was sola scriptura. Now, what's the next one? Because it's already eleven twenty-four. I just want to get through these five. Um, I really wish I had like a month <laughs> to do them, but I don't. Sola, and forgive me, I'm not good at Latin. All right, I think it's spelled with a T. Sola gratia. <laughs> By grace alone. All right. So, basically, we don't have to go back over the five points of Calvinism again, but really, what was the emphasis there? Grace. Now, what I, so I'm not going to say, I'm not going to go back over those points, but I want to add just another element to this. There is a sense in which being reformed, especially today, uh, stands in a backdrop against what we would call dispensationalism. Now, you and I probably grew up good dispensationalists. How many of you all watched those really, 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 I still kind of like them, but they still kind of scare me, those old prophecy films? Yeah, he showed, showed the real, the real, and, you know, people were running to the altar getting saved. I don't want to get left behind. <laughs> But what is that? That's all. This, that's dispensationalism, and the idea was is we, God had one plan and that failed, and then or or man failed the plan that God had, and God scratch it and and try something else in history, and we'll scratch that and we'll try something else. Rather, ra- ra- rather, um, we look at now. If you'll turn to Jeremiah thirty-one, uh, we're we're going to get to a point here on on grace, uh, but. But generally, uh, covenant uh, 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 reformed embrace, to be reformed embraces uh, what's known as covenant theology. Now, some people will even take that a little too far. Uh, but basically, we're not we're seeing everything as as an unfolding of God's covenants, beginning with the covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before He created the world. Hence, we have Ephesians 1, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, uh, so on and so forth, purposes, predestination, all that. But, but and then He created, there was a creation covenant, an Adamic covenant, uh, the Noahic, co- Noahic covenant, and, and they're, not represent, they're re- representing an unfolding of God's plan. Uh, if you ever get a chance, there's a little book that B.B. Warfield, uh, and, and I brought a couple copies for, of, uh, of R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God to, to give to a couple people that had asked for something uh, to read about the subject. But if you ever want to get into a deeper subject, B.B. Warfield had this old book from about 100 years ago called The Plan of Salvation. It's definitely worth your time reading. Uh, but basically, it's talking about this unfolding of the plan. Now, what was, what was, basically, this collimates in the new covenant that was revealed perfectly to us in Christ and was prophesied here in Jeremiah, also in places in Ezekiel. Did I say Jeremiah 31? Yeah. Verse 31. This is quoted from Hebrews, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 almost verbatim. In fact, this will make the longest 
unbroken quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament will be the writer of Hebrews quoting this text. And I want you to see the great, hear the grace here. This is not about man doing anything for salvation. It's about God fully saving them. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, says the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, now listen to the, the, message, the sound of grace here, the message of grace. I will put my law into their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the last of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The covenant of grace finally, perfectly, and most fully revealed to us in Christ, which we're going to get to. But that is this idea that God is a covenant-keeping God. It's by grace because it's grounded in what God has revealed to us of His covenant. All right, so sola scriptura, sola gratia. Uh, don't make fun of my Latin, okay? Sola fide. All right, now we're getting into a more formal stru uh, 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 a structure that you and I can start seeing in the here and now, I guess. What's sola fide? By faith alone. That was the cry of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther scrubbing the floors, crawling on his knees, trying to do the correct penance, all because he was reading a very bad Latin translation <laughs> uh, that's, that made him believe that penance was necessary to his salvation. Came to that precious truth that was quoted three times in the New Testament from the book of Habakkuk. Specifically, he was zeroing in on Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. And what does that mean? It's for whoever believes. Now, I don't know much about, you and I won't really figure out election because we just can't. But what we do know is the one that believes is saved. And that's why we preach the gospel. Because... Faith in Christ is what saves people. Uh, faith in Christ uh, alone. Uh, so let's look at Romans 5 real quick. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 1. Just we, we just need the very first few words. Therefore, we can park on that word therefore because we can start describing everything that was said up to this point. 
what was said up to this point. We're totally lost, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Christ has, uh, God has, re, has paid for our sins in Christ, which is getting to the next point, uh, the next sola. But, uh, uh, and for chapter 4 specifically is what this therefore is, go, is reading back to. What is chapter 4? is about faith, about believing God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. A quote from Genesis 15, 6. From the very beginning, it's always been by faith. We have, we have some of our dispensational friends running around. Well, people in the Old Testament were saved by works. <laughs> no. Abraham was saved by faith. He believed God. David, after Moses gave the law in, in Romans 4, saved by faith because he believed God. And so on, all in chapter 4. And so he has collimated an argument here and says, what is the, what is the conclusion of my argument in, in, in uh, Romans 5.1? Therefore, being justified by faith. And because of that flows all the great blessings that he goes on in the rest of this chapter. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access uh, by the faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we glory in tribulations and the love of God is spread apart in our hearts and it goes on and on. All the great blessings that we have and all the rest of chapter 5 um, zeroes in on that those truths and on through six, seven, eight, it all comes to us by faith. Now, you know, people to be argued that there is, uh, which we've taught on on many occasions uh, uh, in uh, James two, where it talks about being justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, but we have to allow for a different use of the word the term justification. There, justification. Ju uh, wisdom is justified of her children, or something to that effect. Uh, here, Paul is giving the doctrine of salvation. There, James is dealing with another matter altogether, which we don't have time in a short amount of time that we have today. Uh, I can send you more material on how we look at James 2. But the, the mechanism of our salvation is faith, and therefore we declare the gospel. This is what, this is what makes, makes uh, it an evangelical Calvinism, an evangelical Reformed faith, uh, that we believe that those who trust Christ, those who believe Christ, are saved. All right, so sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, and... Sola. I don't. I don't know my Latin. Christos. Sola Christos. I told you, don't make fun of my Latin. I don't. I don't know Latin at all. And since we've very rarely dealt with solas, <laughs> uh, I've just always said them in English. Sola Christos. Rest to chapter five, chapter five of Romans here.
by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 12 and then we have the comparison what adam failed to do christ accomplished it was christ that said that broke the bread and gave the cup and said this is the new testament in my blood which is given for as a ransom for you it's not faith in faith, but it's faith in Christ. It's not, it's not uh, you signing a card or, or raising your hand or, or, uh, or when the preacher says one, two, three, stand up, you stood up or you did, you did all that kind of stuff. No, it's faith in Christ alone. Uh, Christ is the one that that did everything that was necessary uh, for salvation. Everything that is necessary for you to believe in order to be saved is all centered on the person of Christ and what he did from his, throughout his life and throughout his perfect life and throughout his sacrificial death for us, Christ alone. Um, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We are chosen, in, he chose God, the Father chose us in him. Uh, Christ alone is sufficient for all of us. I don't think any of us would, would um, take a qualm with any of this so far. And finally, sola de gloria. And I hope you see how this is fitting in with, the, with, with just the basic premises of, the, of, of a Calvinistic faith. For the glory of God alone. All right? So why am I saved? For the glory of God. Uh, why did Christ die? For the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Now, I think we tend to just pass over certain things when we're reading. and they, But this is chiefly brought out to us in the doxologies of the New Testament. And the more I'm getting into the Hebrew and studying deeper into the Hebrew, I'm seeing a lot more in the Old Testament as well, uh, where, where we're getting this narrative. I'm reading Deuteronomy right now, right now and all of, a sudden it, all of a sudden it just stops with this glorious thing where he says, Our God is a consuming fire. God is jealous. Uh, and and that, that's meant to be a praise of God. Uh, God is merciful above all. And, and, and just so it'll stop. And all of a sudden you'll just hear this great praise of some aspect of God that is, bring, that is being brought forth. Well, that carried over into the New Testament alone. Romans 11 is one of my favorites where Paul was talking about how God was working uh, for the salvation of Israel and so forth in Romans 11, and then he stops before he goes on and says in verse 33, Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor? Who, who hath first given to him, and he shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things in whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What do we learn from doxologies like this? 
and, and they happen just sporadically all throughout the New Testament. We learn that whatever, it is, whatever the subject is, it all leads to giving glory to God alone, to that doxology, that doxa, that glory giving. Um, you can just go on through here, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, where he ends in verse 22, if any man love the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, let him be anathema, maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. Uh, turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We have it repeatedly here. And in fact, we can say uh, the end of chapter 1 as well is this great doxology, but he comes to the end where he's talking to us about his prayer. Uh, that we would be filled with the knowledge and the goodness of Christ and the love of Christ. And he comes to verse 20 and says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is Brother Jimmy's favorite doxology, I believe. Verse 17, he's talking about his own salvation and how does Paul answer his own salvation where he says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's not just, it's not just uh, Paul. It is every single writer here that will engage in these great doxologies. If you go to the book of Jude, he ends his short treatise with this doxology in verse 24 now unto him that is able to do to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise god our savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever and we could go on and on in these references but the new testament writers saw all of this as being for the glory of our God. So that's the five solas. <laughs> Any questions? So this is the broader framework by which, we, by, by, by which uh, all of this is brought forth. And this is what is meant by a reformed faith, or at least a skeleton outline. Uh, now obviously the term reformed um, can take other nuances depending on what group is claiming it, but um, at the very basis of it is these beliefs, these five solas. Any questions? This was a very rudimentary covering of the subject, but I hope it was a blessing. You all know it all, huh? No questions at all. What? Still learning? All right, did I offend anybody? Any complaints or grievances? All right. You all were full of questions last week, so. <laughs> What's that? Terminology, yeah, terminology is hard. And uh, that's, that's why, well, I ain't getting into that. All right, well, then we got about 15 minutes before the next hour. Go get yourself a cup of coffee or something like that.